This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and I'm joined by Laura from AJ Bell. Hi there. This week we're talking about funds that Greta Thunberg would invest in, Saga's sneaky savings move, Terry Smith's popularity and Barclays' beef with the post office. And joining us to chat about all of this is Chris Foster, an investment manager from fund manager Line Trust. Hi there. Hiya. So now as we sit here, there are climate change rallies going all around us in London, not literally in this office, but um, and this week is also Good Money Week, which focuses on ethical investing. So we thought this was a great time to cover ethical investing, which we've not really touched on on the podcast. No, before. not really, no. Um, so Chris, most of us are more aware in the of the environment in kind of our everyday living and, and buying things. Has that yet translated into how we're picking our investments? Um, so... We, we sort of think that it is starting to become that way. I think before there was a kind of a massive separation between how people think about what they buy and, and, and what they do in terms of their own personal activities and then a complete separation from how their personal savings, how their pensions are actually invested. And we're starting to see kind of that gap closing and people taking much, much more interest in, in how their money is being invested. And actually, um, I was looking at paper that uh, Bernstein published a couple of days ago, and they looked back at from 2005 to today, and the the sort of compound annual growth rate in ESG investing has been about 33 and a half percent, which is That's a sort pretty of pretty sizable. Then. Yeah, it's huge. It's a 57 fold increase. Um, so I think what we're starting to see now is consumers are starting to demand it more and more. Advisors are now starting to think about: Am I serving my clients properly, knowing enough about this area and, and investment platforms as well? Because it's something from from our kind of research that we've done of our customers, it's something millennials and kind of younger generations are more interested in. But the argument until now has kind of been, that's great, but those groups don't typically have the the large amounts of money to be investing. They're saving for houses and they're kind of at the earlier stage of their investment journey. So if it's growing dramatically, does that mean either those people are getting richer and have more money to invest or that people in older generations that hadn't thought about this before are starting to consider it? I think it's a bit of a combination of, of the two. And, and as you see, the millennials sort of age and, and get to a different stage in their life where they're saving more and more, I think you'll see that, that, that progression continue. But I think also there's pressure from that generation on their parents and, and more discussions. I mean, I'm just talking personally here, but more discussions are happening around dinner tables and in the pub and with friends, including older generations. And I think those sorts of discussions are really kind of providing a sort of a catalyst for for that generation to start thinking about these issues. Is it, is it quite a lot of um, investment products sort of with, with that sort of ESG or sustainable or ethical label on the market now? It, sort of, it feels like everyone's talking about it, but if I was an investor looking for an opportunity, um, is it quite easy to find stuff that's suitable? Yeah, so I actually think it's never been easier for for kind of a retail investor to to find um, you know these sorts of products. And actually, you know, just last year, a competitor of AJ Bell's, Hargreaves Lansdowne, launched their first. You can't mention their name on. This I know. Podcast. I did wonder. I was going to run it by you beforehand, but I thought you might say no. So, uh, but uh, no, you can. Well, so they they launched their first kind of guide to ESG investing, and as far as I'm aware, you know, AJ Bell and, and Shares Magazine, you've been writing about ESG investing sort of since 2016. Um, an interactive investor actually recently launched the first kind of, um, the first 
kind of recommended ESG investor fund list, um, which, is, which is a really interesting step. So there's more and more resources available for retail investors and advisors to kind of find these, these funds. And so what, what, inside these funds, is it companies that are trying to sort of help save the environment and, and might profit from selling things like um, energy efficient light bulbs? Or is it companies that are simply um, sort of acting in, in a better way? Uh, they're not destroying the environment. So it, to me, it seems like there's sort of two different angles you can get from here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, there is a, a couple of different ways of looking at it. And as with any sort of area of finance, there's all sorts of jargon and, and sort of complicated terms that muddy the water a little bit. We think of it, there's three main areas to, to consider when, when looking at these investment products. The first is kind of negative screening, um, otherwise it's sometimes called um, ethical investing. And this is where you exclude certain sectors, um, tobacco, arms, gambling, those sorts of areas. All the fun stuff. All the fun stuff, yeah. <laughs> kind of weekend in Vegas is how we, we like to... Uh, <laughs> like to sort of refer to it on the team, but that's the kind of the first stage of just kind of excluding those areas and, and then investing in the rest. Um, the second aspect is kind of positive screening or, or sustainability themed. And this is where you actually start looking at those positive aspects that you were talking about, those kind of trends that happen in, in the broader economy, trying to identify which companies are best positioned to sort of benefit from those tailwinds and then invest in those. So that's kind of thinking about it from a much more positive aspect. And then third and final one really is engagement. This is all about kind of engaging with the companies that you invest in to try and improve their ESG credentials on the stuff that actually is most important to those those businesses. So I think we should perhaps clarify what ESG stands for because I think it's widely used. But you know, I do talk to lots of people, and they sort of they go, oh, "I know two of them. I'm not quite sure what the what the middle one is." So it's E, e is environmental, yep. S is the social, yes, and G is the governance. Oh, I thought it? S was sustainable. No, yeah. social. Yeah, oh, yeah. So, God, I'm showing myself up. <laughs> so, because at Lion Trust, you you sort of position yourself as being looking at it from sustainable is sort of the title. Why why do you sort of look at it like that, or does that still include looking for environmental and sort of governance stuff as well? Then, yeah. So, so kind of in that framework that that I just sort of outlined those three areas, the sustainable investment team at Lion Trust, it like does all of those three things. So, negative screening kind of sustainability themed and then also the engagement aspect and what our view is that if you start from a position of looking at these kind of long-term structural trends and changes that are happening in our economy trying to identify businesses that are kind of positively exposed and then dig properly into the actual ESG kind of management of the risks to those businesses that's how you get to really really interesting investment ideas and it, it comes from a belief really that sustainable companies have high, better growth prospects and also are more resilient in the economy and then utilizing that kind of underappreciated aspect to identify sort of the value in the market so that's, that's so a good way to probably it. bring it to life is if you could give us some examples maybe of some of those either the companies or the or the themes where you think that having that sustainable angle means that they will see higher growth yeah, so it's kind of a, uh, I think it's going to be particularly topical um, on, on today's podcast, given what we're going to talk about later on. But one area that we looked at quite recently was digital payments and this sort of shift away from cash to digital. Um, so the first aspect as a team was to kind of quantify whether we think this is indeed a force of good, you know, whether we like this shift away from cash or whether 
um, the, the negative aspects of that outweigh the benefits. And after kind of considerable research and considerable work and discussion amongst the team and our advisory committee, that is a sort of independent like board of sustainable experts that we sort of discuss and pitch these, these themes and our ideas to, we concluded that net-net there are benefits to moving away from cash. Um, and, and the big swing factor really was reducing the size of the shadow economy and uh, making it more difficult essentially for criminal activity to be funded. Um, and and that, was, that was our sort of big, big conclusion from the piece. So I imagine if, if someone was buying, say, an, an ESG fund, perhaps the, their, their primary interest, interest would be like environment yeah. sort of stuff. And, and then they find out a, a theme, like you say, is to do with more sort of sustainability and, and, and doing the right thing for society. Would they be perhaps a bit shocked thinking that they, they thought they were sort of investing in sort of climate change type things, not, not what you've just discussed? Yeah. yeah, perhaps. I mean, the whole the kind of the whole proposition of the funds are to be able to outperform mainstream benchmarks um, by investing in companies that are providing net benefits to society. So it's all about, like any portfolio manager, it's all about having a diversified and balanced fund. So we love the, 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 the theme of climate change and we have plenty of kind of companies exposed to that, but we're not by any means going to be in a position where if that trend has a couple of years of, of sort of negative headwinds for whatever reason, then our fund is going to really, really suffer from that. So it's about having that kind of diversification. I think sustainability is increasingly nuanced and, and it's our, our job to kind of really dig into the detail and, and work out, you know, what are the net benefits to society? And if so, can we find exposure for our clients? And what about the the kind of G part of ESG? So the governance side, that to me feels less easy to kind of put a pin in and, and really identify what kind of companies that relates to. Yeah, so actually it's kind of a good follow-on from once we've done that initial thematic work, we've identified a potential investment and then it's the the underlying kind of, we call it management quality and, and that's how we assess how well that company is managing its environmental and social governance issues. Um, and the governance aspect is is we have lots of kind of base criteria. So, you know, we want like a, um, an independent majority board. We want kind of well-incentivized, clear kind of remuneration um, alignment with shareholders, which you'd be surprised how often that, that isn't necessarily the case. Um, and, and how they kind of manage their other issues, their environmental issues and, and how they treat their employees, how they treat the, their staff, all of that goes into one score that we give a company. Um, on a, on a, it's on a scale from one to five, one being kind of market leading, you know, um, everyone should aspire to be this company in that industry and, and five is kind of, you know, absolutely not caring about the customers, their employees, or just really, we think, challenged from a forward thinking perspective, so. And is this just on, on the subject of greenwashing, which is a phrase I increasingly read about it's the the idea of companies sort of promising that they're going to do something or saying that they're they're sort of meeting these sort of ESG criteria um, but all they're all they're really sort of talking about is yes we recycle um, waste in the in the office but not really doing anything um, that's out of the ordinary it's the bare minimum just so they can tick this box and say 
know, if, if we were to meet someone like yourself, uh, we're meeting various different fund managers that we can say that we're doing a lot to help the environment. But do you, do you find that there's quite a lot of companies that are just um, talking it up but not actually really doing any proper actions? Uh, absolutely, yeah. So, you know, given that increasing focus that we talked about before on, you know, from the media and, and from consumers on sustainability, everybody is trying to present themselves in, you know, understandably the best possible light. So it's our job as kind of sustainable investors to dig really into the detail and to concentrate on the most kind of important ESG issues. And really, you need to go in quite skeptical and think an annual report or, you know, a corporate um, you know, CSR report, they are essentially marketing documents trying to give the company the best possible image. So it's our job to go in and say, okay, well, take a bank, for instance, do we really care that a bank recycles its paper? Yes, it's good for the environment and, and certainly we don't think that's a negative. But that's kind of a standard now, isn't it, for it, any company? Exactly. And also the key here is that we don't think that them doing that is going to impact the total shareholder return from being invested in that bank. So it's about really being focused on the right thing. So so banks, again, it's we try and talk about um, examples that aren't necessarily nailed on obvious candidates for a sustainable fund because we think it's important for people to realize there's there's all sorts of companies that, that can make the grade and retail banks that are providing you know mortgages and current accounts are pretty important for society so we, we actually will invest in retail banks if they're properly managed um, and actually if you're on the right side of thinking about these issues so if you if you hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about UK banks for instance and how the culture and the incentives were aligned to not necessarily customers and shareholders but to kind of individuals and corporate profit profits then you'd have been on the wrong end of the PPI mis-selling scandal which at the end of the day the shareholders then had to fork out for that so that 50 billion pounds or whatever the number is now since 2012 has been diverted away from shareholders back into the kind of public domain and if if you weren't thinking about sustainability when you're investing in these banks you could have been on the wrong side of that and so that's there's an area of of by neglecting these sustainability issues you're exposing yourself to higher risk Uh, and then the flip side is there's also opportunities from kind of doing the opposite and really focus on these issues and trying to find those businesses that manage these these uh, ESG issues like particularly well. And the kind of greenwashing claim um, has also been levied on some funds in the industry, hasn't it? That because ethical is now becoming, I was going to use the word trendy, but that's not a trendy word, is it? Cool, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, um, it's more in vogue than it was before. And so lots of fund management groups are now just thinking, okay, well, if we whack the badge of ethical on this, or maybe we talk a bit about how we're investing sustainably, then we'll attract some of those assets. So does that annoy you? Um. No, well, we try not to think too much about what the competition is doing. Um, I think the one point about how we manage the team and how, how we we kind of invest our clients' money is that it's a fully integrated approach. So I think that's where the differentiation really comes in is that, you know, an analyst on our team has to cover the theme, has to cover the um, the sustainability analysis of each individual company. But then we use those that research that analyst has conducted as an inform- informational advantage when it comes to modeling the business fundamentals and the valuation of that business. So we actually use it as a way to 
try and outperform the market and to, to actually identify these the, the better price securities that are likely to do better. So I think there's a lot of lot of kind of um, ESG funds or ESG kind of investment processes out there where they have a separate sustainability team and all they do is do all the sustainability analysis and then basically say, you can't invest in this, you can't invest in this, you can invest in this and hand that to a, to a traditional kind of fund manager who then just picks the best from that list. And we think that in that kind of handing over process, there's there's information that's being, like valuable information that's being lost. Um, and actually you can end up being on the wrong side of things like PPI or actually kind of miss out on the, the upside from these higher growth, more resilient businesses. And so are, is there any examples of companies that are actually doing things positively? Um, so sticking on the theme of trying not to just answer with the obvious you know, the, the, the easy examples of sort of Kingspan and Kerry that we've held in the funds for years and years now and the, the kind of sustainability arguments for those businesses are really, really clear. So going, going back to the bank's example, um, we invest in a, a business called Rinkubink Lanbo Bank. And That's I, a great name. I, yeah, I appreciate... <laughs> Not spell that. <laughs> I appreciate the, um, the... That just sounds like a made-up word just now. Um, the ticker is actually Rilba, R-I-L-B-A. Um, so maybe if you Google that, you'll actually be able to find out a little bit more about it. But this was a business that we really, really like from how they manage their key ESG risks. And when you look at the financials of the business, that's where it feeds in. So they, the return on equity of this bank is sort of mid-teens, which is really high for a European bank. Um, and they do this with half the leverage of the average European bank. So again, the kind of the profitability numbers are there. They, they, ba- they barely have any loan losses. And then when you dig into the why of that, we actually were kind of skeptical numbers look too good so we went to the headquarters which is based in um, west jutland in denmark on a kind of wintry a wintry day so my, the the european fund manager wasn't best pleased with <laughs> me pulling him all the way there but actually then you get a feel for the culture it's a very centralized organization all the lending decisions get made at that head office in west jutland the um when i was talking before about incentives the senior management team and the board, there are no bonuses, there are no variable remuneration. They they just get their fixed salary. Um, there used to be an option scheme apparently for the CEO a long time ago, back in I think 2005 or something, where the CEO would get options in the, to, to buy the shares based on his performance. But the shares of the bank did so well that the board then vowed, we're never gonna do that again because the value of these shares have gone up so much. and speaking to the CEO, you know, why didn't you leave? You could have gone somewhere else. And, and you know, like the culture in the UK, for instance, around around bonuses and incentives is, is, is very different. Um, and the answer really is that he, John, John Fisker, the CEO, just really likes his job. He likes who he works with. You know, he likes the community that he works in. And that really sort of feeds through to the culture of the organization. And you can see actually on like the third page in their presentation deck, they are the second highest rated bank in, in the whole of Denmark on customer satisfaction. And again, you know, as a retail business, it's such an obvious point, but businesses that treat their customers really, really well are gonna do really, really well. But investment analysts looking at banks and whether to invest in a bank don't necessarily input that into the valuation models because it's really hard to do. And so, so that's just an example of a business that we think is is managing these issues really, really well. And it's such an interesting example because I think it shows that, because um, 
you hear some fund managers say, okay, well, we just wouldn't invest in financials or we wouldn't invest in banks. And it shows the the difference there is underneath that if you're looking at all different companies and, and their approach within that sector. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's about going to that kind of deeper level and, and not just trying to have a really easy story that's 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 really simple to, to say, you know, we don't invest in any retail banks at all but actually being prepared to go into the detail, the nuanced kind of benefits and, and negatives to different business models and, and then identify businesses that you think are gonna do well over the long term. So I just got one final point on this subject, which I, I picked up from an event I went to last night. I, I, have, to, I have to use it on the podcast. It's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. So I'm gonna ask you, Laura, who, why do you think ESG is so popular amongst the investing community at the moment? Um, because people care more about the environment. No, wait. I know I'm going to put on my cynical hat because it's delivered better returns than non-ESG. There is some. I've seen some facts which do support that, but it's actually to, it's to do with climate change. So the the two most important people in terms of raising uh, awareness of trying to fight climate change have been Greta Thunberg and David Attenborough. So David just about to turn. Um, 94. Did you just say David though, as though you're like on first name terms with David Attenborough? Well, yeah, no, I don't want, you know, we can leave that for another podcast. Dave. <laughs> he's just about to turn 94. Greta's 16. And if you if you add up their ages and take the average, it's 55. And that's the point at which you access your pension. It's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, if you I, put um, all these unrelated facts together, yeah, you yeah. come up with another no, I can, fact. I can take, I, that's, that's courtesy of Standard Life. So um, if, you, if you're cringing at home, you can blame them, not me. So, um, <laughs> I think they were just trying to justify why, why there's so much interest. But anyway, we move on. So Laura, you, you've been looking at a sneaky move by Saga on its savings rates. What's going on there? Yeah, so Saga, um, which we've talked about before, but more from a kind of shareholder investor point of view um, previously. So they launched some new savings rates. So they teamed up with Marcus, which we've talked about before, which is the new kind of savings offering from Goldman Sachs. So Saga teamed up with them and it's um, now launched its first savings accounts with them. Um, so open to older customers only. Um, but the weird thing about it is they are offering you less interest than if you just went to Marcus directly. So their savings account, their easy access one is paying 1.4%. Um, and if you went directly to Marcus, you could get 1.45%. Is that because they, I presume that Goldman Sachs are taking a cut? So they want... So well, I think Saga are probably oh, sorry, taking Saga, isn't it? Yeah, so Saga's taking some commission at yeah. Um, and then they've also, at the same time, they launched a one year fixed rate account that pays 1.15%. So less than if you went into the easy access account, which feels quite balmy to me. Yeah. So, um, you know, this this is aimed at the old, they pitch their accounts at over 55, don't they? Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think, I guess their intention is that the brand of Saga and the, the trust that that has among its customers will be worthwhile them investing with them or saving their money sorry with them rather than going directly to Marcus but I mean it's just as easy to open an account with Marcus the only difference is that um, Saga has a telephone helpline that Marcus doesn't Marcus is all online so I guess so that could be the difference yeah it's just putting the emphasis on the the individual to be quite savvy with their finances but you know, there, there is a generation that um, is not so good at that is there so it's I mean we talk about sort of the cash world there's lots of people who don't like to do online banking um they may not feel comfortable opening up an online account um they may trust saga 
more than someone else. I guess we, we've seen this with Barclays, haven't we? This yeah, week so this week we saw that with, with the kind of Barclays move around the post office that there's been a lot of uproar about, which I think shows that people are still using branches and post offices and that's a big kind of part of a particular customer base um, rather than all of us who are just online. So what's the news with Barclays? So they're, they're saying from next year, it's if, if you're used to going to post office to withdraw cash from your Barclays account, you're not going to be able to, which seems a bit mean, doesn't it? So yeah, because the logic behind, so we talked about a bit about bank closures before, um, and then you can, the logic behind that was, well, you can still go into a post office and, and do some of your banking services, not all of them. But Barclays has now said, um, not only are we closing branches, but we're also going to stop you being able to go into the post office. I think instead they said they're investing in their AT ATM service, but um, that's obviously not as good for people that like to go in and, and talk to a person over the counter. Yeah, so I mean, we were talking earlier about the, this cashless society, but I guess it's um, there's still a need, isn't there? Really, in the in the world for for cash, there's still this you know, say a generation who's who's so used to using it. So, Chris, I don't know if you when you say you've looked at the cashless society. Um, do you have any sort of figures about how many people in the world or, 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 or sort of using cards or, or just cash or, or is there any sort of trends that you've seen? Yeah, so um, we wrote a piece uh, about this sort of will the cash the society pay off on the on our sort of website and it's really interesting because we think there's around 80% of transactions in the world that are still cash. So in terms of the growth rate and how long this shift is going to continue, we actually think it's going to continue for a very, very long time. Um, we do think that there's really kind of important steps need to be taken to ensure that those people that really like to go into branches and maybe aren't as technologically savvy don't get left behind. So it's all about financial uh, inclusion and, and trying to make sure those those people still have access to these really, you know, really important kind of, it's almost like a utility product, isn't it? Um, but on the flip side, I was... I was I, in that in that article we sort of talked about how i think the numbers go back to 2015 the if you add up all the cash in the us for instance um, and just divided it by the number of people so men women and, and children the average person is walking around with with $4300 in cash um, and that's 80% of that is in $100 bills wow so <laughs> you've got to start questioning kind of what is this cash really doing mm. in society you know I don't, you know, I don't know anyone that walks around with with thousands of pounds. Dan regularly does. Maybe, no. maybe Dan. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you've got to start questioning kind of why those that quantity of cash is out there. You know, this isn't mm. this isn't so that people can can go and buy things from their their local shops. This is, we think there's there's other stuff going on here. So there's pros and cons, but we think that that shift is is broadly positive away from cash. Well, I'm increasingly going places and you see that you can only pay by card. They don't want cash, which is... Which is such a switch from yeah. previously where you would have more expected people to say they don't accept card and they'll only have cash. I think what was it, the, the old argument was that the shops would want cash because they want to pay their workers with it, I guess, but you can just pay it, pay their salary into a, electronically into their bank account. So um, I guess it's, it looks like the trend is heading that way, isn't it? So um, it, you know, maybe it will be around for quite a while but you know, ultimately I don't know 50 years I think time, it's a we... generational thing so yeah. I never have cash um, but if I think about like my parents they'll always have some cash in in their purse or, or wallet maybe not as much as they um, used to but they wouldn't dream of kind of going out of the house with zero cash whereas regularly I would and it would be a rarity for me to take out cash 
So it's probably just a generational thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I saw, this, I saw someone busking in Waterloo Station the other day and they had a sort of a little machine, a little sign saying tap for a two pound tip. I can't believe it. I thought, you know, it's quite entrepreneurial. But, that is. Um, but, you know, that, maybe that's indicative of where we are in society. Churches now have it for their collection Do they? baskets. Wow. Some churches have a contactless machine um, rather than you chucking coins into the yeah. collection. I'd like to point out I haven't been to a church for years. I just read about this. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of an interesting fact, actually, um, before they, they changed all the, the cash, you know, in the UK to the polymer-based notes, um, there was a study, and bear in mind... I think it was done by MasterCard, so there's probably an underlying incentive here around the, the conclusion, but there was a study that found there was more traces of E. coli on a £5 note than there was on a, on the average toilet seat. Oh, no. Um, which is actually one of the reasons they, <laughs> that they made that shift to the polymer. They're actually much cleaner. Um, but I just thought that's kind of a weird a weird and horrible fact. Yeah. That is, to carry around in your head. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, just keep giving. <laughs> um, and so finally this week, the Smithson Investment Trust from um, Terry Smith turned one. Have you brought a yeah. birthday cake for us for this? Or? No, it's actually, it's, it's the podcast birthday this month as what well. So I'm kind of looking for to receive cake as well as give. So yeah. Am I meant to, I think that's uh, our producer, Matt, that's his responsibility. Yeah. We'll see. Well, you know, maybe some of the listeners can send us in some, some <laughs> gifts. We'll take any we're not fussy <laughs> don't uh, sound too desperate yeah <laughs> <laughs> anyway you met the team um, at the smithson investment trust so when it launched last year it was the biggest ever investment trust launch the previous biggest ever launch was patient capital which i'm um, probably less said about the better at the moment <laughs> but um so how's how's the trust doing one year in it's well it's, it's, it's so it raised i think it's just over 800 million pounds it's and it's done just about 19 percent return in a year which is amazing isn't it so that's if you think about the historically we're looking at sort of seven percent from the stock market um it's done significantly well people have flocked to it because they've done so well with the fundsmith equity uh, fund so fundsmith is the asset manager that runs both of these products so people thought well if i've done so well with fundsmith should you know, can I get the same with this Smithson product? So there was a lot of faith put into the trust when it launched, um, hence why it managed to raise so much money, much more than it initially wanted to raise. Um, but it, it gave it a good start. It launched in October, so this is if you if you sort of, anyone sort of follows the stock market might remember last October was horrible on the markets, really horrible. So they were able to build this portfolio at sort of reduced valuations. Um, I think that's given them a good start. So certainly when I went to see them, they 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 the fund managers were sort of saying yes, sir, you know, timing was good. But they argued actually we if we if we'd done it in December, we'd have been even better because there was another big lurch down in the market then. But um, you know it's a good start but what i think is quite interesting is that terry smith is the guy who runs the fundsmith equity fund and that's the people but if you talk to anyone in the public about are you invested in this fund they love him they think he's like he's great but he doesn't run smithson so again you're putting a lot of faith in to a new product that's um with some fund managers that are running it that perhaps people won't know they've come from goldman sachs but um you know they've, they've done quite well but they did say to me that, that there was pressure um, internally and externally for them to do really well. So it's a good start, but I guess if, they, if, it, if the market goes through a difficult patch, they're really easy targets. I kind of feel a bit sorry for them because um, you know, they are sort of trying to develop a long-term strategy and you shouldn't really sort of judge a fund performance for, I don't know, three or five years. I reckon it probably, you know, be, 
to see if it's really doing well or not. What it's and actually, normally, that's the point where you'd see assets tick up in a fund. So people would wait, particularly the kind of professional fund buyers, um, would wait until there was a three-year track record before they went into a fund. So it's interesting and maybe slightly alarming that so many people went in when there was zero track record right at the launch with... Um, maybe slightly unproven fund managers, or at least fund managers that didn't have the big reputation and track record of Terry Smith. Yeah, I mean, they, they, their CVs are really good. I mean, they, they are... Yeah, I don't mean to diminish uh, their professional achievements yeah. there. but And certainly when I was interviewing them, they came across as very bright people. Um, they're following an existing investment process, which is kind of gives them a bit of a head start in terms of credibility with the market. They're following exactly the same process as you use for Fundsmith. So... Um, it's interesting because I sort of said, you know, does that mean that even though Terry Smith is not running the fund, you know, is he ultimately having to see see your homework basically, everything, you know, and, and sign it off? And they went, oh, I bet like that. They like that question, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but they were they were very open. They said yes. Like, you know, the day to day stuff they do, but they, he cc'd into all the sort of emails um, when they go to. M- buy a company for the first time for portfolio or sell something they do sit down with him and they kind of want they want his advice they want is to just just to talk about it with him um but you know there is one lead fund manager he makes the decisions it's not simply down to terry sort of saying fine you know, I, I i'm totally in control here so um i mean that's that's quite positive i think you've not got someone's overarching character who, who's controlling everything but um, yeah, I mean, certainly it's pretty good. Um, you know, for Fundsmith fans in their office, they've got this big cabinet that's full of all the the products that are inside the Fundsmith Equity Fund. So they've got you know lots of um, it's fit really heavy into consumer sort of stuff. So there's loads of sort of drink bottles and stuff. I did notice some of the alcohol bottles where it wasn't quite full. Maybe someone <laughs> had a little tipple. Um, but but the Smiths and guys are saying to me that they that they want their own cabinet um, and they've started to do it, but. You know, some of the things that they invest in is not quite easy to, to shove in a to sort of display unit. So they do stuff like Spirex Sarco, which is a steam engineer. So it's, um, I don't know how you stick a, a massive bit of steam equipment into a <laughs> cabinet, but they, they assured me they got a couple of corporate branded baseball caps in there. <laughs> well, that feels like quite a sad cabinet, yeah. then, doesn't it? <laughs> but no, I mean, it's, it's, been, it's been a good start. And I'm sure if you've been invested in it, um, then it, it would have hopefully would have met expectations but we'll we'll see still probably it's too, still too, early, too early to judge it i think so. yeah okay so thank you ever so much for listening to us this week if you've got any suggestions for future topics or general comments then please email us at podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we'll see you next week thanks a lot thank you thanks before you go please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.